0: Welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast, I'm your host Stefan Thomas and I'm joined as usual by rugby correspondent Ben James and we've got a special guest today as well, we've got Tristan Bevan, over 25 years of experience in professional rugby, most recently with Cardiff, also been with Wasps. How are you Tristan? I'm very well, thank you, how are you both? Very yeah,
1: well, we're good, we're good.
0: You you were right, Ben? Uh, I'm, I'm good. Recovered from the World Cup. Just about. Uh,
2: just about. A bit of post-World Cup Lurgy. Uh, still knocking around. But um yeah, I'm good. Uh, missing France a bit, but what can you do? Is
0: that is that actually a Lurgy or are you sort of uh, you know, feeling the effects of uh, too many uh, nights out in the uh, nice. in France. No, I was in bed by ten o'clock every night in France.
2: So uh yeah, it must yeah. be a Lurgy. Yeah,
0: have you have you heard that before? Um yeah, so, um, yeah, thanks for joining us, Tristan. Um, yeah, we, we'll just get straight into it then. Um, obviously, you know, regional rugby back up and running. Uh, what have you made of the, the opening sort of uh, three weeks or so of the season?
1: Um, I don't know about you guys. It, f- it feels a little bit strange because obviously the height of the World Cup and everything was delayed. The URC is a few weeks later than it should be. And um, it it does feel like a rebirth of, of a new competition and, and it's sort of, once you've got over the sort of the intensity of the World Cup, which many people I've spoken to probably feel as if it was the best World Cup ever, and then um, obviously I think the reintegration of the national players for Wales is still ongoing. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's interesting for me now because I'm looking at it as a spectator for the first time in 24 years. I'm looking at it as a fan. So um, yeah, I'm excited for it.
0: Yeah, um, you know, you know, as as a coach, and we're gonna, I suppose. In terms of S and C, you would be classed as a coach or new. So, when when you've got this situation in Wales, where especially after a World Cup, you've got certain players who aren't going to be there for the start of the season um, because obviously international commitments and whatnot. How how difficult is that as a, as a coach, especially in the strength from a strength and conditioning point of view, because they've sort of done their work with Wales in the summer, but you might be wanting to play a bit different. How how, how tough of a balancing act is that?
1: I mean, you can you can explain how tough it is as a coach, but I guess it's the players that are the ones who are suffering the most from it. I mean, you've got effectively now a year-long calendar um, for the players. Uh, it's a very nutritional sport. I'm sure we'll speak later on about how different it is now to when I first started coaching. And um, yeah, I mean, I've got to be careful saying what I what I want to say here, but I do actually feel for the players in some respect, as far as they've always always got their foot on the accelerator the entire time now when, when you look at sort of balancing up the developmental aspects of training with comp- competing all the time if you are a international rugby player now playing for a senior team which obviously you would be um you are effectively just in competition more the entire time so there's very little time for development and um yeah it's um it's it, it is increasingly becoming a tougher way to make a living that's for sure
0: yeah you know you've got um it's one, one thing, this one question that's been on my mind for a while. So I'll just get straight to it. So, you know, you've got in the past, not just recently, Warren Gatland has said, you know, they've got to get the players up, the Wales players up to a certain level of fitness. They've got to do the fitness work in Wales camp. I think it was sort of insinuated or inferred that they're not fit enough at regional level. Is that fair, do you think? You know, or is it just a case international rugby requires?
1: In, in, higher level. I mean, since the advent of GPS assessment, which is going back to like 2008, you've got—I mean—better brains than me, really, sort of proving a straight line between the higher level you go in international rugby, the harder it is. I mean, everything from performance analysis suggests that there's more actions on the field, there's less time of rest on the field. Um, one of the sort of metrics that they use, as far as quantifying how how hard a game is running-wise, is meters per minute. And there is no doubt that the higher up you go, um, you know, the the game is quicker with less rest. You know, there's more ball in play time. And um, it it really is sort of comparing. If you go to any other sport, whether it was track and field or swimming, if you compete at regional level um, swimming or at national level and then go to the World Championships and Olympics, every time you take a step up, um, you know, the margins get smaller. Like the metaphor I like to use is the closer you get to the top of Everest, the, the air gets thinner. So um, I do believe something would be wrong with, with international sport if, if that wasn't the case. Now you can reframe that if you wish and say, well, when you're competing at county level cricket or competing in in swimming in the in the, in the local gala, well, the standard isn't high enough. Well, the reason for that is the competitive jeopardy isn't as high. Um, so therefore, you know, it, it's only common sense to suggest the higher up you go, and, and it is right. The, the more you play international level, the standards are higher. There there is no doubt
2: about that. Do you think that's sometimes not communicated as well as it could be? Uh, I remember was it maybe six five, six years ago, I think Gareth Davis played out in, in Ireland for Wales in Dublin and Gatland came out afterwards and spoke about about how maybe the scrum arts in the squad weren't weren't fit enough. And I remember at the time that caused a bit of an uproar and, you know, we went went through the footage and you see that Gareth Davis is at every ruck and But in the end, I think what Gatland was getting at, and he didn't say it explicitly in the public, was about what you said there, which is metres per minute and the step up from, at the time, I think it was the Pro 12 or the Pro 14 to test rugby and the difference in the metres per minute. But that wasn't communicated that well at the time, which is where I think maybe people thought Gatland was hanging Gareth Davis out to dry.
1: I mean, I've been there. I mean, I've been a coach long enough to make a lot of mistakes in my career. And, you know, you like to think that you learn from them. That's how you move forward as a person, as a coach. And ultimately, sport is Darwinian, right? So you've obviously, you've got the position of everything that you say, especially if your national coach of Wales gets absolutely scrutinised under a microscope and gets interpreted by a thousand people. Um, But ultimately, I mean, Warren Gatlin's job is to coach a national team and squeeze that lemon to get as much juice as possible. Now, how he does that is his job, and it's not for me to comment on it or on anybody else's. Now, the the one thing that is interesting, though, is that people like myself, I'm, I'm a little bit of a data geek, I'm a little bit of a statistics geek, and there's many measurable things you can measure in sport. I mean, it's one of the wonderful things about sport. But one of the great things about rugby is there's a lot of unmeasurables as well. So little things like you just mentioned there as far as, okay, in, in that instance there, um, you might have a GPS of a player stating, well, look, he was off by 5% the way he normally is. But then the unmeasurables would say, well, maybe the game's a little bit slower, so he's able to get to the ruck at the same time. Um, so the wonderful thing about rugby, I feel, is that it is objective and subjective. And at the end of the day, one coach picks the team, and it's that person's responsibility to sort of to make sure that they get the players the way that they want to. Have I have I dodged that question well enough? Right? <laughs>
2: Very well, way, Very well.
0: When, you know, you, you talk about, like, um, the the way the game is now. I mean, obviously, the, the game has evolved. It evolves year and year, doesn't it? You know, when you first started, um, you know, being involved in professional rugby, I mean, how can, can you, I know this is a really, it's going to be a really deep question, but what are the biggest changes from a strength and conditioning point of view? Okay. I know there's a lot of them probably, but how, how would you sum that up? I suppose the, to most,
1: know. the most humbling way I can say it, and I mentioned this the other day, in uh, my son plays for Fantra Summer and the road. and I, I remember talking to the dads on the side of the pitch. So, when I first started coaching, it was in Newport in 1999 with Alan Lewis, and you had people like Gary Teichman and, and, and these kind of guys playing there. And i just come back from America studying um, my master's out there. And I mean this in the most humblest sense now because I've got my dad and mum's genetics, so I'm nothing special. I could have probably played and not stood out for being terrible back in those days physically. Now, if I transpose 22-year-old Tristan onto the field now playing for anybody, you'd look, what is that person doing on the field? So as far as size, strength, fitness, ability, everything, um, it's, you know, it, it's a completely different sport.
0: Yeah, you know, you know, you get you still get these people like you see it on social media. I don't know if you're on social media, but they say, "Oh, the good old days." You know, um, players are programmed. You know, they're like robots this day and age. But it's just a totally different world, isn't it? It's just far more professional now. The game is the game is better, isn't it? Wouldn't you say? Have an experience. Yeah,
1: yes, yes, I know. I mean, <clears throat> you've you've got this scenario of. Um... I always like to use the phrase, what is an outlier now will become the norm in five years' time. So, I mean, the prime example of that is you're looking at the size of players where someone like an RG Snyman or Andreas Dehuysen now, you know, obviously both of them South Africans, who are absolutely colossal, they stand up. They're on the fringes of the sport as far as how huge they are. But, I mean, if we have a conversation in five years' time, I would say that wouldn't become the norm, but everybody else catches up with that standard. So, I mean, rugby, thankfully, is still a game for all shapes and sizes. You look at people like Cheslin and Colby, you know, Shane Williams, arguably the best player Wales have had in the last 25 years. Um, it, it's a sport that energises people's skill and speed as much as size. But, um, and I'm a bit of a rugby romantic. I mean, I grew up on the Noll watching these play with Elgin, Reese and Reese and Jiffy and these guys. And to me, rugby is, a, is an art form. It's not, it's not a bish-bash-bosh scientific experiment of, of forces and physics. Which is quite weird because the part of my job for the last twenty years has been trying to sort of almost ruin the game because I've created these big, as you call them, robots who are big, fast, to try and negate the weakness in the team. Um, But the older and and arguably wiser I've got, the more I've come to realise is that that doesn't necessarily make them better players. It really doesn't. It it just kind of makes them not stand out as much.
0: Do you you think that? You know, we've we've got that. There's a lot of emphasis now. A lot of um, a lot of emphasis on concussion, and you know, obviously they've tried to modify the laws a little bit in terms of trying to get people to tackle lower. Um, you know, they made a bit of a dogs dinner of that, didn't they? Because of the inconsistencies in in refereeing decisions. But do you, do you think the fact that they've made like back in the day, I suppose, you know, you could argue the game was tough. It was a bit. It was a bit. You know, maybe. Uh, dirt in terms of, you know, there's a lot more fighting and stuff. But today, you know, you've got people like RG Snyman going full on, colliding with somebody else the same size as him. Do you think that the emphasis that they put on making players bigger and stronger has sort of contributed towards concussion becoming more of an issue now than perhaps it was 20 years ago?
1: Firstly, can I just pick up on one thing you said in in your your comment there? And um, obviously referees, who'd want to be a referee at the moment? And the reason I say, is because if a player knocks the ball on or does a forward pass, it's a whistle, it's a scrum. Players are allowed to make errors in the game, right? Seemingly somehow the narrative has changed where referees all of a sudden aren't allowed to make errors. If they make an error, oh crumps, it's a career-ending sort of decision whether you're a TMO or the referee. Like everybody on the field of play is allowed to be human apparently except for the referee at the moment. And I find that's, I find that's completely wrong. Um, you know, referees yes, the interpretation of a referee is going to be different from one to the other, but like, if that's changing, well, then we are in a difficult spot as a sport. I think we, we as fans need to really appreciate the fact that these people give up all their time and um, you know at all levels in order to make sure the game goes ahead. But anyway, I'm digressing. Um, to answer your question as far as concussion, uh, this is my opinion and my opinion only. This has not anything to do with anybody else. Um, I feel... Because I, I was, I was kind of. My career has spanned the, the time that this has happened. Remind me when eight subs became a norm or seven subs became a norm. I think it was around the late nineties, I believe. Um, now I draw a straight line between that decision and people needing not to play eighty minutes in a game. And once a person needs not to play eighty minutes in a game, it reduces it as an aerobic sport, and therefore you could you've got this scenario um, of. Tired players who played 68 to 70 minutes who are really coming to the end of their so energy output in the game, all of a sudden coming up against, like you said there, an RG Slimer if he comes off the bench who's 130 kilograms worth of raw South African muscle who is completely fresh. Um, now, there's two sides to that argument, which is um, tired people do make more mistakes, which obviously could then lead to a concussive event. But I like to view it in the metaphor of... Um, if um, if either, either of us were in a boxing match right now, and by the way, Stefan, if he's you and me, trust me, I wouldn't be able to fight myself out of a wet pepper bag, so that would be your win in one round. But, that. <laughs> but if, we, if we were in a boxing match of 15 rounds, and as we were getting more tired, after the 12th round, I tagged somebody else in and then they come in and fight you, wouldn't you agree that that would probably lead to a greater chance of a concussive event for you? That's kind of the common sense element that I see it. Now, I'm not saying take away subs completely. That that would be nonsensical. Um, but I think maybe limiting in them in the in the football sense where you've got eight on the bench, but you're like to bring three or four on or whatever it is in football now. I think that would energize the sport to make sure players have got to be fitter. And if they become fitter, they by 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 and large they become a little bit smaller as well.
0: Do you think though that you know you know, in terms of concussion, you know, we're seeing more people um uh, I remember talking to a doctor once, right, and he was saying that obviously the the bad concussions are easy to spot, but he he was using a term called um, sub-concussions that doesn't actually knock you out, but you have minor concussions and you don't really notice it on the field sometimes. And obviously we've got more and more players coming out, you know, with the effects of concussion, getting dementia in their 40s and, and, and horrible stuff like that. And you'd have thought that even more would come out in the next few years. And for me, the biggest threat is parents then saying, I don't want my child to play rugby because the chance of having a serious brain injury is, is quite high in comparison to some, some other sports. Do you think it'll get to the stage where that's quite high, that world rugby have to change the laws a little bit, whether it be the sub, fewer substitutes like you, you mentioned, or, or um, differences in conditioning? Do, do you think that, that it will force a change at some point?
1: There's a... um. Coincidences happened now and again and the one coincidence that's quite sort of stark in my in my career is when I was a student at the Michigan State University obviously my accent stuck out because I was a Welshman and one day I' walking on the street and I noticed this Scottish accent so there was a guy a Scottish guy in the same course as me um, who's ended up becoming Professor Sean coming from Bath University who um, who Sean is on the forefront. <laughs> of creating what's called biobanding, which um, New Zealand sport, I think, have taken on now as a principle. I think a couple of other um, nations starting to as well as a trial, which is through the age grades all the way up to, I believe, sort of mid to late adolescence, they, um, they classify players according to weight. So therefore, you haven't got this scenario of one huge player running through 15 sort of youngsters trying to hang on to him. I mean, my son is at the age now where next year he will start tackling in rugby. And as a dad, am I concerned about that? Yeah, I am. Um, not because of any sort of competency levels from, from um, the pathway system in Wales, because that's, that's very, very good. It's just, um, I fear just him coming the wrong side of a player that is twice the size of him who's the same age as him. Um, I do believe that World Rugby are trying their best to address this. I mean, they, um, they are stuck between a rock and a hard player, so because the teams are getting bigger. Um, and, so, well, sorry, I'll correct that statement players aren't getting bigger, just the amount of big players is rising. Because they, they, do, they do that in New Zealand, don't they? The, the weight. They, they've done it for a couple of seasons, I believe, yes. Yeah, they've been
2: doing it for a while, I think. Um, I remember when I was there for the 17 Lions tour, we watched a game in a clubhouse ahead of the third test in Auckland. And it was just really interesting to watch because, because it was based on size and, and weight. It was just a really balanced and even match. Even a sort of a, a, a young level. It's just, there was no no one really sort of standing out for not the wrong reasons, but for for obvious reasons.
1: Well, one byproduct of this, obviously, is if you are a big, big guy um, at the age of say nine or ten, if your default setting will be doing what causes you success, which is just running a straight line, ignore your teammates. And you're actually not developing the core skills required in rugby, which is tactical awareness, passing, strategic elements, of, of stuff like that. Or you are being sort of rewarded in a sense of just running in a straight line and, and trampling over people. So if you play against people of the same size as you, it forces you then to have more of a sort of wide gaze on what creates this beautiful game of ours.
2: No, no absolutely. Um, what's, what's the feeling within the professional game amongst coaches, amongst players... About what the game does in terms of concussion moving forward. Obviously, you've suggested, you know, maybe reducing the amount of replacements. I've spoken to players who have suggested reducing the number of players on the pitch. Um, I did tell him that's rugby league, Uh, but (laughs) I think he was a bit of a a league fan anyway. But I'm just interested, you know, to to sort of know in terms of within the sport, maybe how people see the the, the way forward.
1: Um, It's discussed all the time as far as how to make the game safer, how to sort of look after the players. Like player welfare is now number one on the agenda. Like um, going back to my WASP days, I remember the start of every season, uh, the RFU made sure that we were all accredited and qualified on their, oh, I forget the term, I'm sorry, but there was a, a concussion awareness course um, that wasn't just a tick box exercise. It was something you actually had to go through and pass. Um, so therefore, not only did you become good at spotting the signs of concussion and the warning signs and everything that led to it, but because it was a repeated exercise, you actually found you find yourself quite trained up, even even as a, a lowly S and C coach, in in the sort of intricacies of um, of what sort of causes concussion and, and to spot it. And I mean, awareness is a big word when it comes to it at the moment, obviously, um, but behind the scenes in football, sorry, in rugby clubs now, you do get, I mean, once there's a slightest hint, I mean, for example, Thomas Young was taken off for Cardiff against um, Scarlett, sorry, Clenetley Scarlett on the weekend um, because he had a HIA and, um, you know, th- this is now a part of the language as we describe rugby because it's a part of the safety mechanism, which I think is very good.
2: Absolutely. Um, because the other thing that interests me with, with your idea of reducing replacements, and you did sort of factor in that, um, you know, maybe tired bodies make mistakes. I think I think the number of concussions in sevens is higher than it is in 15, or at least it certainly was a few years ago when there was okay. statistics done. I think 2020, there was the last time they maybe did a, a proper study into it. But I think the sort of the rate of concussions within sevens, but I suppose that, you know, that could be one of two reasons that could be, fatigue because it's a fast paced game but also just how fast pace and the amount of space is probably you probably get yeah, probably getting sure. you probably getting collisions from a further distance than you at, at a higher speed. No
1: exactly. So World Rugby you've got a very very sharp cookie by the name of Ross Tucker um as a sports scientist um I'm not sure quite sure what his term is but the the, the good thing and and the slightly frustrating thing in that is is research takes time. I mean, you have to collect data in order to prove what a trend is, what a correlation is, in order to make decisions post-fact. And you can't just, the smaller the sample size of the data, the higher the chance that you're going to get the decision wrong. So bizarrely, the more that you stand back and watch what's happening in front of you, the more it gives you the data to make an informed decision down the line. And um, and, and look, I know World Rugby are doing that now. They, They are looking to sort of to take stock of what the sport has given you, and, and probably I'm sure somebody somewhere is in the background beavering away just to sort of looking looking at all this data.
0: When you look when you look at, um, uh, I, was, I just wanted to go back as well because you you were involved with Cardiff because when people talk about the regions now, or you know we could call them professional teams or everyone to call them clubs regions, and obviously they're struggling on and off the field, but that wasn't always the case, was it? You were at Cardiff when you know we win in Challenge Cups. I think you won the the Anglo Welsh. Um, you know you you had a, a really strong pool of players, good Welsh players coming through at the time, like Lee Halfpenny, Sam Warburton. There's a lot of others as well. I mean, how how fondly do you look back at that era with Cardiff, and where do you think we've gone wrong in Welsh rugby at, at regional level?
1: Right, I can't answer that second part because that's a huge, <laughs> that's a huge thing. You'd be, you'd be um, earning let, a lot
2: of money if you could.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me get romantic for a second, which is um, when rugby went regional. I was working, as, as I mentioned, I was working in Newport with Alan Lewis and uh, Ian McIntosh and Percy and Tysh and all these guys, Shane Howarth. And I remember at the time, it was a huge upheaval um, where everything, you know, Standard Welsh rugby, everything the the, the nuclear button was pre, was set and, and everything changes. And growing up as a rugby romantic on the Knoll myself, I thought going from nine clubs to four was the worst idea in the world because um, you know because it's a change and people are afraid of change, right? But then regional rugby took off, and at the time there was five. Obviously, I lived in Bridgend, so I was sort of when I didn't have a game with Cardiff, I used to watch the Warriors play, and all, and, and it seemed okay to start off with. But what happened was. It became very, very hard to get a contract if you're a Welsh rugby player. I remember um um Mevin Davis, one of the best players in Wales at the time, didn't get a region. if I if I if my memory serves you right. Yeah. So there was this sense of huge jeopardy, which was well, you've got nine times 35 players um looking to get into effectively five squads. So that squeezed everybody's sort of focus a lot. And um as you say, I was, I was lucky enough. And for the first three or four years in Cardiff with Dye, um it, it was tough. I mean, we were, we were losing a lot. And um, there wasn't really um, much sign of light at the end of the tunnel. But then slowly but surely, um, as you said, we, we had a golden era of not only good foreign signings, but also, I mean, they appeared all at the same time. Jamie. Lee Halfpenny, Sam Warburton, Josh Navidi, Lloyd Williams, Bradley Davis, John Yap, Nicky Robinson, Jamie Robinson. These were all local Cardiff boys who were outstanding players. But then to get into the Cardiff team, Lee had to dislodge Benny Blair, one of the best players I've ever coached in my entire life. Jamie Roberts, poor fella, had to try and break into a a centre partnership, which had Tom Shanklin, Alfie, Gareth Thomas... Uh, Jamie Robinson, and who else would have been there? Casey Lolala. So in order for Jamie to actually get into the team, his standards had to be not just here, but here. It had to be super, super high. Um, So I think you had this perfect sort of model of not only it being very, very hard to get into the team, but the way you got in there was having your personal standards being super, super high. And it was a numbers game. No different to what you see, um, what I saw, sorry, in, in England, which is... You know, you've got an area, when we were in Wasp, you're an area in Coventry, which had a population of, between Coventry and Birmingham, at four and a half, five million. So the chances are that you're going to get a lot of good players come through the academy at some point. And then there's nothing better as a professional coach than seeing people come through your academy of certain quality because you can see that the future is going to be bright, but it doesn't half like the fire end of the players playing in the team as well, seeing that their position is under threat.
0: When you know you said Ben Blair was one of the best players you have ever coached, I'm sure a lot of Cardiff fans will remember those two touchline conversions in that that semi final against Leicester. Although we won't we won't mention the shootout. But what in terms of Blair, what made him one of the best players that you you coached? Uh, presumably, you meant off the field as well as as what he produced on it.
1: Um, so as far as as far as Ben Blair, um, he he wasn't the biggest player in the world. He was very very quick. And he had this Chesling Colby ability just to sort of step off his left and right foot and, you know, beat you in a phone box one of those players. But also, he had like 103% kicking rate or something stupid like that. I mean, he never missed. In fact, the only time he did miss, and I'll never forgive him as well, I corner. Conor, to where if he'd have got the ball over the top, he would have won the league. But then, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's deep in my memory bank somewhere. But obviously, Ben, those two touchdown conversions against Leicester were incredible. But... One of the things at the time we used to do a lot as far as fitness was was what's called small-sided games. I mean, it still goes on now. And I, as S&C coach, I was referee in those games. You now I'm the worst referee in the world. Every player I've coached would tell you that. But instead of holding a whistle, um, when you had your Casey's, your Ben's, your Jamie Robinson, Jamie Roberts, Nicky, these guys playing Aaron Robert games, I should just stand in the middle and just clap because – the quality of what you saw, like the 4v4 in the barn or whatever you do at the time, watching them play and play this sort of Hollywood-style pass. In. It was like watching the Harlem Globetrotters train. And you'd get to a point where, OK, we've, we've, we've covered, let's say, five kilometres now, guys. That's enough for this session. You know, let's let's tune in and let's, 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 let's pack away. Because they were superb players who loved playing the game, they would often tell me, ah, oh, forget it. We want to keep on playing for 15 minutes because we absolutely love doing this. And... It was just high skill, um, high output high output players, and Ben Blair was probably the best sort of personification of that.
0: Yeah, you know, you know when you look at whenever a, a Welsh team signs um an overseas player's you know, player, you, you see, you know, there's always a reaction or use block in the path of a young Welsh player. I know not every overseas signing is going to be a success. It depends on the individual, doesn't it? But do you feel that the likes of Ben Blair um you know, uh, Rush, etc., Molotica, Laulala help develop Jamie Roberts, Halfpenny. That having good overseas players is something that perhaps where we're missing in Welsh rugby at the moment. That could, and those players can sometimes speed up the development of the the sort of local talent.
1: I mean, I can only speak from the lens of my own experience this year, but the answer is yes. Um, and I'm going back to my previous time in Cardiff when we had the aforementioned Casey and Rushi and these guys, um, but then. By the same token, you had I mean, you had Martin Williams in the team. You had Daniel Jones, Tom Shankley in the team. These were players who were equally as good as the foreign sort of imports. And then going to Wasps, when we had Kurtley Beale, Viliame um, you know, they, they would bring the best out of Dan Robson, Joel Joel and these guys who were already very very good players. Um, and I, I think, um, yeah. I, you, you can only get better teams by having better players, right? And, and there's no greater sign for a team that has taken its ambition seriously than than, than having a good foreign signing. Um, I, I don't subscribe to the blocking up the pathway arguments because if you look at the Irish model, they've, they've got a system over there which, you know, they, they energize the Irish um, provinces by having. A lot of them are time servers, obviously, but they do they do cherry pick individuals to bring into the team to raise the quality. And I I, I personally see nothing wrong with that.
0: Yeah, well, one thing I wanted to touch on as well is um, I, uh, whatever people think. Obviously, size does matter in terms of performance in, in professional rugby these days. Obviously, you've in Wales, you know, we got we got fewer players to select from. Obviously, but you've coached in England at Wasps as well. Um, what were the sort of main differences between not necessarily the elite players, but you know the players you got coming through the system? what, what was the biggest what, what's the biggest difference on the hold between young Welsh forwards then and young English forwards that you'd experience at, at Wasps?
1: Um I mean, for every one Welsh player that comes through, that is a talented player who is who's appropriate as far as the development, as far as all the physical aspects. There's probably five in England that's that's the biggest difference um I mean Jack Willis is one of the players that was at wasps with me and he was in the academy and we and, you know I, I kind of saw Jack grow into a player as he came through now I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself out to be shot down here but I believe Jack had played 73 times for wasps including maybe 10 European games before having his first England cap so there's that there's that um reality scenario for someone like him where you have to really, really rolls up, roll up your sleeves in order to achieve. It's very, very tough. Numbers-wise, I'm not talking about quality. Numbers-wise, it's very tough to get into an English team because, I mean, how many is there now in the Premiership? Is it we down to nine or ten? It's nine, isn't it? Uh, Wasps, London, Irish and Worcester, haven't gone.
0: Yeah, nine.
1: So, um, you know, there's, there's more of a press on the same amount of players out there. They're just looking for nine clubs. And... Um, to, to answer your question sort of more succinctly, you, you didn't have to, because there's more bigger players in England, you didn't have to spend as much time developmentally in the gym in order to get them big and strong. You could actually work on the factors that make them better rugby players. And I am probably going to get shot down in flames by saying that as an s c coach. However, that was a good thing. Like spending time outside the gym, becoming better at rugby, better at sort of running, and sort of the, the stuff that makes you a better rugby player is ultimately going to make you better than you're spending time in the gym. That's my personal opinion
0: yeah so so are you saying that like um because, because we've got fewer players in Wales, so obviously in the main you know the the English players are going to be bigger than the Welsh players that that the Welsh players perhaps aren't the the, the Welsh equivalents aren't playing as much rugby because. We need to spend more time getting them up to the physical level to be able to match their Irish or English equivalents. Yes,
1: sick. so a colleague of mine who worked in Wasps me really, is now in the development system in Leinster. And I think I think they don't really let their academy players go into the province until they're 22, 21, 22, 23 in Leinster. They, kind of, they exist on the fringes of the main squad, but they're not really sort of breaking in. And similarly, that's that sort of it wasn't a philosophy or a strategy in England, but you'd rarely get a 20-year-old or 21-year-old really breaking into a team. They would spend more time in that developmental phase, you know, from the late late stage adolescence, 17-18. They'd have an extra four or five years with the development. And that, that means um, you know, playing for nat- one team in um, around the Coventry area, whilst also sort of developing, you know, they would be developing sort of um S and C work, training with the national sorry, training with the senior squad in Wasps. And you'd get this scenario of they'd be marinating in the background for longer, whereas in Wales, um, you've got this scenario of as soon as they turn 20, as soon as someone is a a good player in the 20s, they're almost expected to be straight into the regional team the following year. And I think that's an unrealistic expectation on the player and on the region. And also, to be fair, it's not fair on the academies, I don't think. People are telling them, well, you've got less time developing players because unless you've developed someone by age 20, um, the optics currently means, oh well, you know, you, you've wasted the talent. But I, I don't agree with that. I think these players need more time to develop.
0: Do you think then, then that um, um, I don't know how much you've read into it? But you know, the the plans are to get this elite development competition to sort of bridge the gap between semi pro and pro level Do you think that could be beneficial as well? Because they can, well, we'll have to wait and see what what this competition is like first, obviously. But they could potentially be playing. At a higher level, which could, you know, could could speed the development up a bit. What do you think of that?
1: I, I mean, I, I've I've always tried to stay in my lane when it comes to this kind of thing, and my lane has been in physical performance and sort of analysis and stuff. And when it comes to rugby development, I think you are generally better off asking somebody else because what what you've got there is my agenda would have been. I remember when we went back with um, with people like Sam and and um, and Lee Halfpenny and. Uh, in Cardiff back in the day, you had people, um, so Diane was obviously, Justin Bendell, Dale McIntosh, Paul John, these people were either working with the region, the regional team or with the, or with the premiership teams in in um, in the Wanderers and Ponty at the time. And there was a consensus of opinion, which was, look, we need to develop the next tier of players. And they didn't used to play every single premiership game. They'd have what we would call development windows. So we'd have two weeks off, for example which gave them a little bit of a rest to sort of recover from the batterings. Because, by the way, when, when a 19-year-old player plays senior rugby, they get battered because they're not used to it quite yet. And what, what you've got there is you've got the dream scenario of a player being developed whilst also probably playing 15, 16 games for a premiership team. Um, you know, Josh Navidi used to play for the Wanderers. Warby used to play for the Wanderers. um, uh, Dickomedia played for Ponipri. You know, you, you had all these academy players who were fulfilling their premiership um, dreams of playing for their local team whilst also developing. So um, um, I don't know enough about this developmental tier. I'm sure if, if it's been designed in the background, there's, there's genuine thought got into it. Um, because I genu- you, look, you look at the people in Welsh rugby at the moment, from Nigel Walker all the way down to John Alden, these, you've got some seriously good people, you know, Hugh Bevan, another one, people who've been around the block in different sports who know what development looks like. And I, I think it's quite exciting because... I think we've got some strong hands behind the wheel currently
2: making decisions. Just, just going back to you, when, when you started at Newport back in in 99, obviously the game was only, what, four years into professionalism at, at that point. What, what was it like as, a, as an S&C coach, maybe trying to, to get that message across and, and how it compares to just the awareness around everything now?
1: I... To quote Donald Rumsfeld, at the time, I didn't know what I didn't know. I was 23. I thought fitness was a combination of getting someone to be as fit as they could to run a triathlon and as strong as they could be to be uh, to, to lift as much bench press as possible. So I, I thought being a fitness coach at the time was basically giving them those hard, dark experiences as often as possible um, and having someone like me with that attitude come against people like Gary Teichman, who, uh, you're right. I mean, sport had been professional since '95 In South Africa, I think it'd be professional since 1985, really. Um, but th- uh, that was a massive learning experience for me, where I learned more from people like him than he would have learned from me. And I mean that in an s c point of view. Um, I- I'd come sort of the usual confidence of youth. I'd just been in America for three years, thought I knew everything, came into rugby and then within probably six months really had to take a long look at myself in the mirror thinking, right, you are out of your depth here. So then I decided then, right, I need to sort of start picking other people's brains. So that was my personal experience of what it was like to coach Newport. Um, Obviously, I I was there for, I think it was four or five years and... um, the biggest thing I learned from from that is that you have to collaborate with people. You have to sort of not see yourself in a position where this is all I do and this is all I'm going to do. You have to sort of get good people around you. And at the time, it was great. I mean, everybody from Tony Brown, who sadly died last year, down to, to Ireland, to Tush, to, to people like Shane Haworth. Um, there was a feeling there of, we want to achieve you because of the town. And I, I remember Tony Brown. I mean, he was such an emotionally powerful guy he appealed to these people's sense of, look, you are in Newport. It's a working-class town. You know, the world's against us. You know, they haven't had success for years and years. We brought in Alan Lewis as a coach. We brought these players in. And I remember Tony actually speaking to players before big games like Cardiff. And you literally had players, you had grown men, you know, walking out to there holding their noses because they were getting quite of so teary because Tony Brown used to really appeal to their no- notion of, We've brought you here in order to make these people's lives better to support their team on the weekend, and to me, that's that's what sports all about.
0: Uh, I mean, moving forward, has that been something, you
2: know, maybe maybe not sort of tub thumping messages and, and getting players to cry, but I suppose that that balance between the analytical side of things, but also the human side of things, has that been something that you've tried to carry? throughout your career?
1: Yeah, I, I suppose, um, I, I wouldn't consider myself the best coach in the world. I'm, um, I'm, I'm not a sort of screamer and shouter. I'm not a motivator all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's there's many, many better coaches than me when it comes to that. Um, I'm quite analytic, analytical by nature. So, I like to measure everything. I come from a track and field background. So, everything to me is quantified according to performance. And, I suppose then if you're asking me as far as my own experience here I, I've, I've got 24 years worth of data that I've collected on every single player that I've coached so I'm currently doing a PhD in publication in Imperial College in London and we released a paper a couple of couple of years ago um, involved sort of just with the player size and the speeds that we're running and if you look into the data you can actually see, it confirms to you what your you say which is the game is going in a certain direction. and um, I mean, from a coaching point of view, I think you need a combination of both. you you need you need people who are cold and boring like me, and you need someone with passion, energy, um, you know fire in their belly. and like I've worked I've worked a lot in my career with Dan Barr and I think we feed off each other brilliantly because he is the most passionate, emotional, superb blog you'd have on your side. And I am just the sort of guy with a laptop in the background. So, oh, have you had a look at this? What about this thing? And So I, th- I think you need a little bit of both.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, you know, we're, we're going into this new era of Welsh rugby then. You know, they're trying to reset things. So Nigel Walker and Hugh Bevan have said that they've got a plan in place. They haven't actually, well, they've, they've revealed some of the plan um, that they want more and better players. Obviously, I know you've left Cardiff, but you know some of the young players coming through now, like Mason Grady at Cardiff. You've worked with like Alex Mann, um, people like that. I mean, how, how excited are you about their potential? Um, you know, what 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 players should we look out for?
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you, you mentioned two of them there. You, you can add to that Theo Cabango. You can add Jacob Beatham, Cameron Winnett. Um, there's there's a lot of good guys in Cardiff at the moment. Um, you know, good players and good people. Um, so yeah, as I said right at the start, I mean it's uh, I watched a Scarlets game on TV just there the other night, and it's it's, it's obviously very strange because I'm, I'm not coaching them anymore, but it's still a very sort of exciting thing to see these players play because you played a part in their development, and um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, there's crikey I mean I'm a, I'm a passionate Welsh-speaking bloke from Breanamman, and you won't get a more passionate Welshman than me. But my God, we're negative on ourselves sometimes, aren't we? We are by nature as a as a, as a general sort of country you know if there was 97 brilliant things and three bad things in the room we'd identify the three bad things and i think the sort of the, the the nature of the players that we've got in wales we we have got some very good players there's no doubt about that
0: yeah absolutely being from Burnham, man, you must be uh, pretty proud of uh, jack morgan as well um yes yeah
1: <laughs> so so uh, bizarrely i mean so there's there's um there's a street in Brynhamen, uh, Glyn Road, where Nathan Brew used to live there. Um, and then Sarah Elgin's grandmother was on the same street. So Sarah was obviously out in, um, in the Rugby World Cup as a commentary sense with, with Nathan, ironically enough. Up, up the road then, you've got Anwen Jones, who's now married to Anwen Jones. So she was born up, just up the road in Brynhamen. You've got Hannah then, was the captain of the Welsh uh, women's team. She went to a school in the same way that I did, and so did Jack. And uh, so my 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 father and uh, and Garth, who is Jack's grandfather, are best buddies. They watched Brenhaman play for years and years and years. So um, I think Brenhaman currently is the place to be as far as the epicenter of world rugby. It's quite bizarre how sort of one little area in in West Wales by Castle Caerphilly has become this sort of uh, yeah, it's the place to be. I mean, and, and Jack, I mean Jack Morgan is is probably the epitome of the of the modern rugby player. He's, he's a superb, attritional athlete.
0: And also a very 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 good guy yeah i am from almondford, so uh not my favorite place no, so. well, we, uh, you, you can you can turn that off anytime you want to in that, then,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> fair enough um so yeah just 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 may as well ask Ben I mean you know Tristan mentioned some of those young young players coming through at cardiff um you know we we've I asked Warren Gatlin a few weeks ago, I said, where's the cupboard bear?" In terms of players coming through, and he quickly said full back and ousted half. How much does Cameron win? Is Cam- Maybe you can answer as well, Tristan. Is Cameron win net a potential option for Wales moving forward? Jacob beat them as well? Because um, there's, there's an opportunity, isn't
2: it? I think both Cameron and, and Jacob really look like fantastic options. Um, what's exciting about them is they're, they're, they're sort of very different players. Um, you know, you look at sort of Cameron, he sort of. Just a very sort of electric play, I think, that 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 crossfield kick for for Theo's Troy on the weekend, you know, having the vision to do that and and the, the 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 sort of confidence to do it from around twenty-two. It's it's funny that probably around the same time, well, just a little bit before he did that, Warren was speaking post match in the barbars game about maybe wanting his team to be scanning more in their own twenty-two and if the option's on for a crossfield kick to go for it. And that's exactly what Cameron did about an hour later, you know, a little bit further west. Um, I really like the look of Jacob Beetham because I think he's, you know, from having seen him in the in the 20s and, and, and obviously when he played that, that that game against Toulouse, he just looks a really sort of a short footballer. You know, he can play 10 and 12 as well. And he just, just one of those players who just looks ready-made uh, in terms of temperament. Um, so, yeah, I think they're both going to be options, um, you know, and potentially very quickly, given given where we are with 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 ten and fifteen, you know, we're, we're not not blessed with experience. We're blessed with options, I think, in both positions. Just not experience, I think. Maybe if you look at ten, I think the most cap player we've now got in that is, is Callum Sheedy. I think he's got sixteen caps. Um, Thomas Williams has fifty two if he's going to play there, which Warren has hinted at a little bit. Um, maybe Tristan can tell us how that. I don't know the sort of the, the 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 metrics differ from those positions in terms of meters per minute and and the workload. Maybe maybe Thomas gets a little bit less running to do if he plays ten than than the nine. So it's it's going to be fascinating to see what they do for the Six Nations with those positions. But I think it's an exciting time as well. Um, you know, we've had we've had a, a long period now with a, with a set group of of players, and and you know you got to change it. You know, at some point and. It's all happening at once, perhaps, but I think that's just... You've got to, you've got to see the, the positives in that rather than negatives.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the only play, position I wouldn't play Thomas is tight dead. I mean, sure. Be <laughs> like, he is, he is a basketball player by, by, by nature. He is a fantastically skilled individual and absolutely nothing phases him. Um, so he played, he played for, for Cardiff in my first ever game against connaught at home where I think Lloyd... And I think it was Ellis Bevan I can't remember actually Both got injured So Thomas then Sorry, no, you was the one, I'm sorry So it whoever was, it was 10 It was Jared had got injured Jared and Rhys Priestland had got injured So therefore Thomas played 10 And was man of the match um, But you've only got to see The transferable skill sets Between 9 and 10 are, are sort of Are there really You know, you've got to pass You've got to run You've got to kick And sort of I'm sure Thomas would be A fantastic hooker <laughs> he's, he's just a skillful rugby player with with him,
2: so with with Thomas, there's always been a sense of you're trying to get him into the wider channels anyway, aren't you? Because of because of those basketball skills and the offloading skills, you want to generate opportunities where you can get him almost away from the rocks and into space. So, I'm not saying it's a, you know a long term solution to play him at ten, but also it does create opportunities.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, Thomas Williams is the kind of player that you that you happily part with your money to pay to um, To watch every weekend. I mean, he is uh, he is a skillful player. And going back to the start of the conversation, he is the epitome of um, you know rugby is a game for all shapes and sizes. And and Thomas Thomas's skill and his ability to scan and see. You know, he's a chess player. He, I'm pretty sure he sees things happen two or three moves before everybody else. Um, and I mean, when when you've got a player like that, you have to almost. Ignore what any other coach is trying to sort of impart on him because he's just got to let nature flow. Is as an element, as an element of Antoine de, P- de Pont about Thomas? Like um, maybe we should call him Antoine de Pont
0: de One player, right? I was watching. I covered the the, the Scarlets Cardiff game, and um, he's shown his talent. We know how naturally gifted he is, but I thought your one law you was quite impressive as well. For the Scarlets, he made it, he made it a couple of errors, obviously, but. It was a really mature performance. at ten, the way he controlled the game, took the right options, kicked everything. This is a guy that can play ten wing, twelve outside half. Um, whether he's big enough for Gatlin, I don't know. But it'd be interesting to see if um, if Gattlin will give will give him a go at some stage as well. I, I don't know. You know, Ben, you've obviously uh, covered Wales at the World Cup. Do you think Yoan Lloyd would be Gatlin's cup of tea, or, or is he not really um, not really that level?
2: It's it's a job to tell. Um I think the thing for Yowan is he just needs uh consistency in where he's playing. Um last year he was I think Pat Lamb had the plan to play him at twelve for the season. Uh and then he I think he had an injury in preseason, then he had illness at the start of the season. He never really got that, that chance to play twelve. When he did play twelve, I thought he was really good. There was a game at the Scarlets, uh, where he played about thirty-five minutes. Looked apart. Uh now he's come to Lethley and clearly they want to play him at ten. For him, I think it's just about getting minutes and i i just wouldn't I'd be tempted just not to, to just leave him out the Six Nations squad just let him have a season at the scarlets playing ten you know he's he's a he's a young player who's had a lot of minutes with Bristol but not really in a set position um he's had a lot of things to work on you know when he was when he sort of was last in the Wales squad he had to work on his defense and then Pat lamb was doing that and I just feel that it's been a lot of Things for him to process over the last few years, so I think just give him give him a season at ten. Um, I think Dwayne Peel would be happy with that, given that Sam Costello's, you know, managed to injure two parts of his body in a Wales game uh, on the weekend. There's, there's 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 enough options, I think, that we don't have to rush Owen into into sort of a ten debate, and yeah, we we can just sort of let him get a full season under his belt in that position because it's it's all relatively new to him.
0: Yeah, and just uh, just finally, uh, ov- obviously, you know, I-, I think you know, as as Tristan sort of alluded to, you know, the it's up front where countries like England have an edge over us. When you look at some of the young forwards of Cardiff, like Evan Daniel, he's he's impressed me. Um, you know, your Teddy Williams has-, has been in the Welsh squad, won a cap. Um, maybe Alex Mann, you know, he's capped in the twenties. I mean, I mean, Tristan, are-, are they players to get excited by? Um, but what are your
1: thoughts on, on their sort of potential? Oh, 100%. I mean, they, they, I mean, the one thing you have to remember is they're very young and they've, they've got a lot of development, a lot of growing to do. And I think the best, the best thing that can happen to them is, uh, is not to get a kiss of death too early, which is not put too much expectation on them. Um, and, you know, the, the, the person, obviously, I don't know if uh, any of you watched the Beckham documentary on Netflix, but, you know, people like Alex Ferguson, as soon as they saw someone come through with genuine talent, Used to, so he used to marginalise them purposefully just to keep them up of the light like a little bit so they're not judged too early, they're not sort of given too much expectation too early and kind of um, you know let, let, let the daffodil grow in its own time. And um, I think that's the important thing. As, as much as Ben just mentioned it earlier, like all this is happening at the same time. All these youngsters are going to have a chance at the same time this year. Um, and I think not making too, even though rugby is a results-based business, of course it is, not to make too many judgments for these individuals too early is probably the answer.
0: Brilliant. That feels like a good place to, to leave it. Well, Tristan, thanks very much for your time. Uh, as always, Ben, thanks for your time as well, and uh, thanks to everybody for, for listening.